Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Evolution 101. My name is Zachary Moore. You can email me directly at zach at drzach.net, or you can visit the website at www.freethoughtmedia.com slash evolution101.ftm. As always, you can find audio archives of past episodes at that website. A transcript of this show can be found at evolution-101.blogspot.com. I'm pleased to say that the listenership for this podcast has been growing significantly over the past few weeks, and especially this past week. I really appreciate the interest, but I'm afraid that my server bandwidth limits will crash near the end of the month if the download trends keep steady. Now, there's a few options that I have. I can try publishing the podcast every two weeks to try to extend my monthly bandwidth, which I really don't want to do, or I can just post it to the download section on freethoughtmedia.com or broadcast it there live at the same website. Now, none of these, unfortunately, encompass the convenience of having a regular podcast feed, and I I know how much that's important because I'm a big podcast subscriber, too. I'd like this podcast to remain as free as possible, so in lieu of charging for access to archived shows, I'll just ask for donations. Uh, You can find a PayPal link at the freethoughtmedia.com website. It's just a hobby for me, so I'm not really looking to make any money off this, but the demand has started to get a little big for me to manage on my own. So, if you enjoy the podcast and you've got a couple extra bucks, I'd appreciate it. I'm going to embark on a six-part series of podcasts to present, as simply as possible, the molecular evidence for evolution. Now, I'm extremely grateful to Dr. Doug Theobald's work in compiling not only these evidences, but two dozen additional evidences, which can also be found at www.talkorigins.org. It's a remarkable website. I highly recommend it. Now, usually when people think of the evidence for evolution, they think of fossils. And certainly, fossil evidence is very substantial, which almost makes the case by itself, but we should be interested to know that evidence can be found in places other than under the ground. It can also be found inside all of us, that is, in the molecules that make up our bodies. Now, since the nature of this evidence is pretty technical, I want to preface it with a brief primer so that I can flesh out the relationships between the relevant molecules that I'll be discussing in the next few episodes. So hang with me as best as you can, because the evidences that will be piling up in the next few weeks are really astounding, in my opinion. Now, molecular biology itself is a really fascinating component of the biological sciences. It was born in the early part of the 20th century out of a desire to find some way to unite the related fields of biological chemistry, microbiology, which is the study of microorganisms such as bacteria, genetics, and virology. The goal of molecular biology is to study biological systems by analyzing their macromolecular components. I'll assume that most of you know that a molecule is nothing more than the smallest amount of any substance that still retains its essential properties, Uh, but what are macromolecules? Well, they're called macromolecules because unlike a molecule of, say, water, which is made up of only three atoms, macromolecules are composed of anywhere from dozens to thousands to millions of atoms, depending on the molecule. So they're big. Now, there's essentially four classes of these macromolecules in biology. Proteins, carbohydrates, which are starches and sugars, nucleic acids, DNA, and lipids, which are fat. They're also somewhat unique in their ability to form polymers, or long chains of repeating segments. 
The longer the chain is, the larger the molecule. Proteins perform most of the basic biological tasks in organisms. They form the internal structure support of the cells. Uh, they link cells together. They cut up and assemble other proteins or nucleic acids. They provide a communication pathway between the inside and the outside of a cell. They immobilize and target invading microbes for destruction. And they convert energy currencies to run the whole show. Now, carbohydrates and lipids are used primarily for energy storage, although they do a whole number of other things as well. I, I don't want to slight those people who are interested in lipid biology. I come from a lipid background myself, and I know how essential they are. But I'd like to jump ahead to the final one, which is nucleic acids and its connection with protein expression, because that's really at the heart of the molecular evidence for evolution. Nucleic acids form the central aspect of the replication of life. DNA is a nucleic acid, and it's the beginning of a process that ends in the production of a particular protein. DNA is a polymer, which means that it's a long chain of subunits. These subunits, or nucleotides, come in four basic types, called adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. These are usually abbreviated to be the first letters of their name, A, C, G, or T. A DNA molecule is made up of only these four nucleotides, and they can be placed in any order. DNA molecules are millions of nucleotides long, which basically makes them very long, string-like molecules. Unless they're being copied, DNA molecules are usually wound up tightly around themselves, sort of like a telephone cord that's been stretched too far and too many times. Now, these wound-up DNA molecules are called chromosomes, and humans have 23 pairs of them, or 46 total. The sequence of nucleotides that makes up a chromosome is copied every time a cell divides in the process called mitosis. Now, mitosis occurs whenever new cells are being made, and this happens in your body all the time. Skin cells, hair follicles, liver cells, muscle cells, bone marrow cells, all these cells are undergoing mitosis as you sit and listen to this podcast. Mutations are mistakes in DNA replication. You've heard me talk about this before. The molecular machinery that copies DNA during mitosis is not perfect, and it's susceptible to a number of factors, including radiation, certain chemicals, and even viruses. Radiation, especially ultraviolet radiation, tends to affect adjacent thymine bases, so it's not completely random, but it's very close. There's also a base rate of mutation that occurs randomly, but at a measurable average rate, that results in one base being switched with another during copying. In humans, this rate is about one mistake per every 100 million base pairs every generation. This is about 175 total mutations per individual. If one of these mutations occurs in one of the cells that is transferred to the next generation, we call these the germ cells, and they would be either sperm in the male or eggs in the female, then the mutation is incorporated into the genome of the next generation. Now this is a very important concept. Since we observe time and time again that inheritance is the mechanism for transfer of mutation from one generation to the next, we can infer genetic relationships between organisms based on shared mutations. For example, let's say that your grandfather was the first person to have a unique and dominant mutation, let's call it mutation X, which was passed on to all of his children, including your father, and then on to you. You happen to meet someone who claims to be a long-lost cousin, but how do you know? Well, if you were to compare your DNA sequence to this supposed cousin and find that they had mutation X as well, 
Well, that would be genetic proof that you share the same grandfather. Thus, shared DNA sequence implies shared ancestry. That's very important. Please remember that. Okay, so that's how DNA works. But how do you get protein from DNA? Well, as I've mentioned before, the DNA sequence of most organisms is divided up into transcribed and non-transcribed parts. The transcribed parts are called genes. Gene transcription is the process by which an RNA copy is made of a DNA sequence. RNA is similar in structure to DNA, but it isn't used as a genetic storage molecule for a number of reasons. Instead, it's used as an intermediate to ferry copies of the DNA sequence out of the nucleus of the cell and into the main part of the cell where protein is made. RNA is kind of like a librarian who goes into the basement of the library, makes a photocopy of a precious book, and then brings the photocopy up to a person who requested it. It's basically an exact copy of the original gene, but it's constructed out of RNA nucleotides instead of DNA nucleotides. These copies are called transcripts because we talk about RNA being transcribed from DNA. Proteins are also polymers, or long chains of subunit molecules. Instead of being made out of nucleotides, however, proteins are made out of amino acids. Now, whereas there are only four different nucleotides that are incorporated into DNA, there are 20 different amino acids that are incorporated into proteins. That means that it would be impossible to have a one-to-one relationship between a nucleotide and an amino acid sequence. There's just too many amino acids. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is that there's a kind of code in the nucleotide sequence that requires it to be subdivided into three nucleotide groups. This way, a sequence such as AGTCTGGAATCC would be read AGTCTCGAATCC. These groups of three nucleotides are called codons because they are the individual units of the genetic code. Since there's 64 possible codons, that makes plenty of possible amino acid counterparts. Too many, in fact. Since there are 64 possible codons, but only 20 possible amino acids, that means that there are multiple codons that correspond to the same amino acid. The RNA sequence is used directly to make the amino acid sequence uh, in a process called translation. Amino acids are themselves somewhat similar in structure to a nucleotide. Uh, There's a base structure that's composed of an amino group and a carboxylic acid group, hence the name amino acid. Uh, But since each amino acid also has room for another group, called a side chain, and it's the various structures of the side chain that make one amino acid different from the other. Some amino acids are electrically charged and some have no charge. Some amino acids associate well with water and others are repelled by water. Some amino acids are very large and others are very small. All of these factors come into play during the final product, which is the protein molecule. Ultimately, a protein is just a long chain of amino acids, just like DNA is a long chain of nucleic acids. But instead of staying a long, floppy string of amino acids, proteins fold up into specific conformations, depending on the specific amino acids that are used to make them. Chemical bonds between different amino acids cause part of the chain to stick together. Specific orders of amino acids can cause the chain to fold back and forth or spiral around itself, much like DNA does. Because of all this folding, each protein has a different appearance, or what we call a structure. And it's the structure 
that makes a protein able to do the specific things that it can do, all the things that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. All right, well, that's a lot of information to soak up. Let me just go over the basics again. DNA is made up of a chain of four different nucleotides. The nucleotide sequence is transcribed into RNA, which is then translated into an amino acid sequence. This translation is carried out by virtue of the genetic code, in which 64 different three-nucleotide codons are translated into 20 different amino acids. The specific order of amino acids confers physical and chemical properties to the final protein, influencing the way that it's folded up into its final structure. And it's the structure of the protein that is directly related to its function. Okay, well, I hope you were able to follow along with all of that. If not, you might want to try listening to it again, uh, or check the transcript if that, if that helps you out. Next week, part one of the molecular evidence for evolution. See you then.